Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Our text this evening is John 6, verses 1 through 15. We have here in these verses the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled five baskets with frag fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What do you want from Jesus? What would you like a savior to take care of right now? Some people praise their doctor for, quote, saving, quote, unquote, saving them. Or a friend saved them by helping them when they were in a pickle. Maybe they didn't have the money they needed at the moment. They didn't have the strength for a particular task, or they didn't have the time, and someone stepped forward and helped. For many in this world, they want the salvation of a safe place to live where they don't have to worry about government persecution or oppression or being randomly robbed or killed. They want to be able to eat regularly. They want to be able to educate their children. They want peace and the prosperity that goes along with it. They don't want to have to worry so much about if they and their family are going to have be able to have the necessities of life to live. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and we should be profoundly grateful to God for the abundance that we have. Most of us have probably eaten every day unless we were involved in voluntary fasting. Most of us have not had to worry about living out in the elements. Most of us have not had to face the threat of an ungodly foreign government taking over our country and depriving us of our freedoms. Nevertheless, none of us are set free from the rat race of life due to the fall. We all have some level of concern over the necessities of life, and we wonder what the future is going to hold. The work that is required to keep ourselves and our families housed, clothed, and fed is demanding. And even though we are not farmers, in our own way, we all struggle against thorns, and we have to work by the sweat of our brow. And there's no guarantee that we are going to be able to keep the jobs that we currently have 
as economies change, as health changes, as accidents and disabilities take place. And we know that we need to save up something for a rainy day, but we wonder if we will have enough. How rainy will those days be? And what tends to prompt a certain level of anxiety is that so many factors affecting these things are outside of our control. And these realities rightly lead us to seek God. They appropriately, appropriately lead us to look to the one who alone can meet our needs. But as we can and should also recognize, there is a seeking of God that's not pleasing to him. There's a seeking that is only carnal and earthly. And we can easily fall into a pattern of thinking and living that is focused on our earthly and physical struggles where we end up viewing God as existing to give us what we want. We know that we can mix up needs and wants. This might reveal itself in not being content with just basic things. And we think that God should do more than just give us food that sustains life. He should give us delicacies. So yes, it is appropriate to seek even the earthly things that you need from God, but examine what you think you need. And uh, many think God is unfaithful if he's not giving a life of ease. But more importantly, are you seeking earthly things out of a love for them? Or are you, even in seeking those things, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things he's been talking about, food and drink and clothing, will be added to you. Seek first the spiritual matters that last into eternity. Seek salvation from sin and the righteousness that Christ alone can give. Seek salvation from your sin nature that still clings to you by praying for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Make use of the means of grace that God has given for spiritual growth. Attending the ministries of the church where there's the reading and study of scripture and prayer and the sacraments and where there's fellowship with other believers through which you help each other apply God's word in the daily struggles of your lives. Seek the salvation of the lost through evangelism and ministry. For the kingdom of God that you are to seek is God's work in the lives of sinners that is manifested in this world in the church. The church, the people made up, uh, who make up the body of Christ, who have come under the lordship of Christ by faith. And of course, flowing from new life in him, we begin to live in a way that shows we belong to him and are under his rule as our king. Seek the eternal things. And of course, God can and will add, as he is pleased to do, all of the less important, uh, less important earthly things, but things that we do need for this life. The text before us this evening points us to Christ as our Savior, while at the same time leading us to question, what is it that we are to be seeking from Christ? What sort of kingdom has he come to build? What kind of king is he as the promised Messiah? Is his kingdom earthly? Is his rule one in which we are promised a prosperous earthly life? Did he come to give us earthly lives of peace and ease? Or did he come to give us something much more important? These are leading questions that our text addresses. The events of our text took place a good deal of time after the events of chapter 5. 
And in chapter 5, we have had basically two main things that happened, a miracle and a discourse. We have the account of Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. This created a controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders because this healing took place on the Sabbath and because Jesus had commanded this man on the Sabbath to take up his bed and walk. And that was in direct conflict with the tradition of the elders. Uh, They had dictated that to carry one's bed from one place to another on the Sabbath was work. That violated the fourth commandment. The persecution that the Jewish leaders brought against Jesus was the context for him to make some very bold and unprecedented claims to be the Son of God doing the work of the Father. Jews understood correctly that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Of course, they didn't believe Jesus' claim, and so he spends a great deal of chapter 5 defending his deity. He asserts that he knows what God knows and is doing what God is doing. He claims to be able to give life to the dead, spiritually and physically, just like the Father. He will judge all mankind, and he will receive the honor and worship that belongs to the Father. He is of the same eternal essence as the Father. And he points to four witnesses of these things, John the Baptist, his miracles, the Father himself, and the scriptures. The Jews claim to believe Moses' words, but Moses spoke of the coming Christ and of his eternal spiritual kingdom. And so their refusal to believe Moses' words was evident in rejecting Jesus' words. And with that, chapter 5 and Jesus' discourse in defense of his deity is concluded. And then we notice with chapter 6, it begins, after this, or after these things. And what follows happens six months to a year later. And we believe that chapter 6 is occurring sometime around April of the year 29 AD and that Jesus is just one year away from his death. We've been considering what is called Jesus' great Galilean ministry where his focus was basically in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, though Jesus did venture into Judea and and, uh, into Jerusalem for its feasts, including Passover And uh, while chapter 5 was about how Jesus was rejected by the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem, chapter 6 is about Jesus' rejection in Galilee. And uh, this rejection occurs in the context of this amazing miracle of the Lord in feeding 5,000 men, which is what we find here in the first 15 verses of chapter 6. And I've taken this miracle, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, as the theme of these verses and of this evening's message. And we will consider this theme under three headings, what, why, and the result. So we begin with what? The miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with only five barley loaves and two fish is one of the most remarkable miracles the Lord performed. There is no miracle that um, was done more publicly The number of people fed by the Lord may have been as many as 20,000. This miracle must have made an impression on the disciples and on early believers because this is the only miracle of the Lord that all four gospel writers together include in their gospel accounts. The setting was along the Sea of Galilee. We know that not far from the seashore on the northeast corner of the lake near the city of Bethsaida, Julius, 
there is a plain of rich soil, and behind it rises a mountain known today as the Golan Heights. The Greek word refers to really any rising up of the land, and we would probably call it a hill, especially if we are familiar with the Rocky or even the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, filling in some of the details from the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus had been laboring along with his disciples in the area west of the Sea of Galilee. At this particular juncture, he wanted to be alone with his disciples. The disciples had just returned from a missionary tour, and they needed rest. They needed a time of debriefing and further instruction. Plus, the news of John the Baptist's cruel death had reached Jesus at this point. And for these reasons, Jesus sought a place of quiet where he and his disciples could rest, reflect, and meditate and so having crossed the Sea of Galilee in a boat from west to east, they came ashore and walked inland up a fertile plain of green grass that backed up to a hill. Jesus and his disciples ascended a short distance up this slope, the slope of this hill, and then sat down. And as Jesus rested there with his disciples, Jesus could see from their elevated position that a large crowd was coming. These people were following Jesus, and when he had gotten into a boat, they had followed along the shore on foot. And they finally caught up with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus' question to Philip about where to buy food so that these people could eat was, according to Mark's account, after Jesus had taught them at some length. John informs us that Jesus didn't ask Philip about where to buy bread because of a lack of knowledge. Jesus was fully aware of the miracle he was about to perform, but this was a test of Philip's faith. How would he respond when faced with a problem he could not solve and really no human being could solve? Would he look to Jesus and would he trust in Jesus' power to feed these people? They had already witnessed many of the Lord's miracles. Had they been paying attention, is Philip recognizing Jesus' power? Again, Jesus had taught the people for a while. It had become evening and the people were hungry. They were far from civilization. The situation is described thoroughly in Mark chapter 6, verses 35 through 37. It says, And when the day was now drawing to its close, his disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the day is drawing near to its close. Send the people away so that they may go to the country and villages round about and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And he answered, shall we go and buy bread for 200 denarii and give it to them to eat? One denarii was a worker's daily wage. 200 denarii was equivalent to eight months wages. And even if the disciples had that much money on hand, it was actually not enough to feed each person in a crowd this large, even one bite of bread. And apparently, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, had done an investigation among the crowd to see how much food was on hand that might be shared. And all he found in that crowd was a boy with five barley loaves and two fish, a mere drop in a bucket in order to feed a crowd of this size. Not that it makes a lot of difference overall, but when you think of loaves, as described here in our text, with the particular Greek word that's used, don't think of a loaf of wonder bread of around 20 slices, I actually looked up like, how many slices are in 
a loaf of Wonder Bread, and it was, they said it usually is around 22 slices. That's not what we're talking about here. What is meant by a loaf was in that day more like a small cake of bread, flat and round, resembling a pancake, from what I can tell, basically equivalent to only a few slices of, of bread as we would know it. And notice the word for fish, it's a word that refers to small fish that were dried or were pickled and were used as a side dish to be eaten with other things, typically with bread. And typically, if pickled, the fish was actually spread on the bread as a condiment. So don't picture two great big king salmon, although even that would not even be close enough to feed a crowd of this size. And so once it was established how little was at hand, Jesus had the people sit down. And there was a lot of grass in that area. The text makes that point specifically. This was in the spring of the year, and so there was grass, and so it was a very comfortable and clean place to sit down. And the miracle took place after Jesus took those loaves and fish that that boy had had and gave thanks. And uh, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus took the bread cakes and fish and began to break off pieces that he then gave to the disciples who collected these pieces in baskets so that they could be carried to the people. And the people apparently took as much as they wanted. They were able to eat until they were full. And when the people initially took food from the disciples, their eyes must have been bigger than their stomachs. For after they had eaten their fill, there were leftovers. And so the Lord told the disciples to go back among the people and to gather the left, leftover fragments, as was the custom of, the day, of that day at the end of a meal. Nothing was to be wasted by being thrown out. But it's actually proof that everyone was fully satisfied that there were 12 baskets filled with leftover fragments. This feeding of so many people from such a small amount of food was a miraculous exercise of creative power. Jesus essentially brought into existence bread that was not there before, and fish as well. A miracle is something that human power and innovation cannot do. It's an extraordinary providence that lies outside of the normal way that God uh, has created this world to operate. And only God has the power to overrule his own rules. And when God changed water into wine, he essentially took that water out of existence and created wine to be put in its place. Or since wine contains water, he created the added constituents that belong to wine and put them into that water. But we also are, are told that he didn't or, or it's made clear that he didn't touch the water, he didn't manipulate it with anything earthly, he merely willed the water become wine. And in that miracle, he changed one thing into another. But in this miracle before us, he created more of what already existed. Bread and dead fish are in this world incapable of multiplication on their own. Now we can make bread, but we have to take existing ingredients, we have to mix them in the right proportions, we then bake them. And we can catch fish that God has created, and of course by his design he has given fish the ability in nature to reproduce from existing fish. But for Jesus to feed these people as he did, he created bread and fish out of nothing, bringing into existence in a mere moment a quantity of food that would take us significant time, money, and resources to bake and to catch. 
So why? Why did Jesus do this? And the second point, the emphasis is on the fact that this miracle was a sign. Notice verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. A sign is a miracle with a message. A sign tells us that there are spiritual lessons to be learned. That what Jesus did here is not just a, something like you might have as a part of a circus sideshow designed to entertain, but this is meant to make a spiritual impression. So what are the spiritual lessons to be learned? Well, first and foremost, this sign, this miracle proves Jesus' deity. This miracle proves that Jesus is the promised prophet, even as the people testify. They knew that something extraordinary had taken place that no mere man could do. Their testimony that Jesus is the prophet who is to come into the world is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to have you turn there. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. We have this prophecy, really, ultimately, of the coming of Christ. But it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. People understood um, this to be a prophecy of the Messiah who in his coming would speak God's words. And we are reminded of how John the gospel writer has already identified Jesus as being the divine word of God. In recognizing Jesus to be the prophet, the ESV here capitalizes the word prophet, recognizing that the people are, are seeing him as, as, as this fulfillment. Um, the people that day whom Jesus fed looked to him as their Messiah. It also reminds you of how Jesus prayed before he distributed the bread. Notice how he thanked God for the food. He knew with divine knowledge what God was going to provide for the people that day, and he thanked God for it. It would have been rather odd, right, in a poor testimony to have prayed with thanksgiving to God for provision in only five loaves and two fish, which we are told very clearly would not be enough. It, 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 it would be as nothing in trying to feed this many people. Furthermore, we see a dramatic difference between what Jesus does and what the other miracles of feeding that occur in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, we see a difference between what Jesus does and what the, these other spiritual leaders of the Old Testament do in the miraculous feedings that occurred in, um, in context with them. Uh, there is, of course, the miracle that took place for decades of God feeding his people by means of manna during their wilderness wandering under the leadership of Moses. But I also remind you of the miracles that took place in connection with Elijah and Elisha. If you want to 
Look with me in your Bibles at 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm not going to read from these passages, but you can notice the headings. So at the beginning we have um, Elijah predicting a drought, and in this chapter Elijah himself is miraculously fed by ravens who bring him bread and meat every morning and evening. And then there is the widow of Zarephath, beginning at verse 8, who is down to her very last meal. And Elijah announced to her that her flour and oil would not run out until the Lord sends rain and lifts the drought and famine, which was three and a half years. And then in 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, the first heading there is Elisha and the widow's oil. So we have a miracle where a widow lady was going to lose her children to creditors. And Elisha tells her to gather as many vessels as she can find, even from her neighbors, and to fill them all with oil from the one jar of oil that she had. And she filled so many vessels that she was able to sell that oil and pay her debts and live on the rest. The end of the same chapter, a man brings Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread. I think it's significant that, that it's barley bread there in 2 Kings 4, and that's also what we have in John 6. But this man brings Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread, as well as some fresh ears of grain. Elisha had 100 men in training, and he ordered that the food be given to them. But even that amount of bread was deemed by the servant to be insufficient to feed them. But Elisha reported that the Lord had said that they would eat and have leftovers, which is what happened. So we have these Old Testament miracles that certainly parallel what Jesus did by the Sea of Galilee, and yet there's this huge difference. The Old Testament prophets Moses, Elijah, and Elisha merely announced what God would do. With Jesus, the multiplication of the bread and fish was clearly his doing. He prayed and thanked his father, and then he was the one who distributed the food. He was not a mere messenger announcing what God would do. He did the divine work. And furthermore, there is a purpose in giving us the information of verse 4, where it says there, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at, was at hand. In, in, in reading this, uh, you probably maybe felt that, that this fact seems fairly irrelevant. Um, this verse feels like an interruption in the reporting of this miracle. But of course, the Holy Spirit never wastes words. And so it is incumbent upon us to search out why the Holy Spirit would include this detail. And let me foreshadow that this detail of the Passover will come up under our third point on the result. But for now, consider that John is telling us that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place in the context around the time of the Passover. And so the Holy Spirit is purposely connecting these events. And in setting forth the significance of this, I would point out that John in his gospel mentions three Passovers in the years of Jesus' ministry. Basically, the Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt, and at the heart of the Passover celebration was each household slaughtering a lamb and then eating it. In the original Passover, the households there in Egypt that had lamb's blood painted on their doorposts and lentil were spared from the plague 
of the firstborn. And that event was meant to point to Christ. It is Jesus the Christ's blood that covers us and spares us from the wrath of God and, and causes the angel of death to pass over. The Passover was therefore a celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt. It pointed to God's ultimate deliverance through Christ from all of the curse of sin. It should be highlighted that John reports twice John the Baptist announcing Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the first Passover of Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple and announced that the temple would be destroyed but then raised up again in three days, pointing to his death and resurrection. The third Passover took place in connection with his crucifixion, his death on the cross. The feeding of the 5,000 took place around the time of the second Passover. And next, in the verses to follow in connection with this miracle, Jesus will identify himself as the real bread of life. The Old Testament manna pointed to him. The lambs slaughtered for Passover pointed to him. The Exodus was a picture of our being delivered by Christ from slavery to sin and death. And the Passover feast will later be the occasion for Jesus to introduce the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus clearly connects his body and blood offered for sinners on the cross with the bread and wine of the Passover meal. And so in sum, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 points to Jesus as the bread of life, the one who sustains us physically and spiritually, as only God can do. There are some additional spiritual points to be made. Jesus specifically performs this miracle in, in circumstances where it is perfectly clear that man has no provisions to meet his own needs. People who are miraculously fed, they are in the country, they are not near sources of food. We are made aware of the presence of five loaves and two fish, clearly inadequate to feed so many. And only after everything is clear that this miracle will be, will be God's doing in, in an utterly desperate situation does Jesus do it. And this is a sign of the fact that in salvation, God does what we cannot do for ourselves. On the physical level, we need God to keep us alive. And more importantly, as he will go on to explain, we need God for all of our spiritual needs. We have no spiritual provisions of our own. We must look to Jesus to provide eternal life. You notice as well from the leftovers, the sign of how generous Jesus is and how ready and willing he is to supply us abundantly. And the gospel is that Christ's saving power and work are adequate more than adequate to meet every spiritual need and are offered with no reluctance. So under the closing point of the result, I want to bring up what should be the result and what in fact was the result. As for what should have been the result, people including the disciples should have flocked to Jesus in faith for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. Prior to the miracle, Jesus tested Philip's faith and we see from Philip's focus on how many earthly provisions were at hand that he was not thinking at all about the power of Jesus to handle this problem. He was failing to grasp the significance of the signs that Jesus had already performed. 
Andrew was failing to grasp who was there in front of him. He had found five loaves and two fish, and all he could think about was how essentially these were nothing to feed these people. What were they to do? Both disciples conclude the situation is hopeless. It's interesting to me that the gospel writers are not hesitant to report the weakness of the disciples. They didn't have the faith that they should have had. And isn't that the point in reporting it? Isn't the effect of reading about such little faith, isn't the effect intended to be something like, how could these disciples be so unaware of who Jesus is? How can they be so dense? And then, we, and then we are reminded that our faith is not always what it should be. We also face humanly impossible situations, and yet we don't immediately think of God. We don't pray to, to him for help like we should. We are also reminded by Scripture's record of the spiritual flaws of the disciples through, through the, the record of, of their flaws that were not saved by our works, but only by grace. Praise God that our faith doesn't have to be perfect. Praise God that all we must do is look to Jesus, who forgives even our lack of faith. And now I would point out what is in fact the response of the crowd. We are told in verse 15 that in seeing this sign that Jesus had done, they confessed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And as we read that, we think all is well. But then what happens next? They decide that they will take Jesus by force to make him king. And in order to understand what's happening, let's put everything together. The, the first clue about the relationship that they have, that these people have with Jesus is found in verse 2. It says, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This tells us something of their motivation in following Jesus. They're not following him as their spiritual leader. They're following him as someone who can meet their earthly needs. And then the next clue is that these events took place near Passover. I indicated that verse 4 would relate to our third point, and here it is. Passover was for the Jews like our 4th of July. It had evolved for many into this national day of independence, celebrating their deliverance from the oppression of Egypt. That was what was on their mind. How can Jesus deliver us from the oppression of Rome? They wanted a king. Certainly Jesus showed himself powerful enough to liberate them from the oppression of Rome. And if he was unwilling to take up this leadership, they were willing to force Jesus into taking up this role by starting a rebellion, crowning Jesus as king, and then daring the authorities to respond. They wanted to push the issue with Jesus. And it's been suggested that the specific mention that there were 5,000 men who were present was a, was a way of drawing attention to the fact that 5,000 eager, loyal men would be a formidable force of guerrilla fighters if they had the right leader. But Jesus would have none of this. This was not why he came. And as he will explain further in the discourse to follow on the bread of life, his kingdom is not earthly, but spiritually came to build the church. Yes, there will be a new heaven and new earth, but the, the heart of that kingdom existence will be a body of believers in fellowship with God, whom Christ has earned through his death and resurrection. The sermon began with the question, what kind of Savior do you want? 
And may Jesus be for you the kind of Savior he came to be, a Savior of sinners, saving us from the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, a salvation that comes through repentance and faith in him. This passage should be the death of the so-called prosperity gospel. May you be delivered from the self-centered seeking of Jesus to give you a pleasant earthly life. May the salvation that you seek be fellowship with God, fellowship with God that requires the forgiveness of your sins. That is the salvation that Christ has for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this sign that points to the deity of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this reminder of why Jesus came, that he came to solve our sin problem, to save us from the condemnation that our sins deserve. Lord, spare us from seeking an earthly Savior with earthly provisions. Lord, we are thankful for how you meet our earthly needs. But Father, may we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, recognizing that these other things are less important. Things that you provide, yes, in your grace, but Father, may we not be seeking you as a source of earthly things, things that pass away. Father, may we be seeking you for the things that are eternal, namely fellowship with you through the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that Christ is able and willing to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we thank you for this passage that, that boosts our faith, that also convicts us as we recognize we don't have as strong a faith as we should. Father, may we, in times of difficulty, first look to you before looking to human solutions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.